Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Dr. John Encarna Sean, who is a geologist and an amazing science communicator. I've been following him on Instagram for years, where he shares geology vignettes that help anyone learn little bits about geology. Today, he explains how the Earth's atmosphere got its oxygen. And spoiler alert, it's because of microbes. John has a really concise and uncomplicated way of breaking down complex scientific information, and I just kept thinking while talking to him and editing afterwards, geez, I wish I had him as my geology professor in college. We specifically discussed the GOE, or Great Oxygenation Event, also called the Great Oxidation Event, the Oxygen Crisis, or the Great Rusting. This one will make more sense after you listen to the episode. I hope you all learned something new today and come away with an appreciation for the intersection of biology and geological science, how the actions of microbes affect the composition of rocks and minerals, and how the geological features of the planet impact the evolution of life on Earth. For more information about microbes in the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant for human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Okay, um, are you ready? Yep. Okay, cool. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here today with Dr. John Encarnashan, who is a geologist and professor from St. Louis University. He also runs the popular Instagram account at A underscore geologist, which is how we know each other. Welcome, John. How's it going? It's going well. Nice to finally see you in person, quote unquote. (laughs) Yeah, this is really great. Before we start, could you just give a brief summary of your educational background and the work that you do? Yeah, so I got my undergraduate degree in geology from the University of the Philippines, where I was born and grew up. I finished my BS in geology, and I followed that up right away with a master's in geology as well. It took me about five years to do my master's because I was teaching full-time at the same time. So it was an odd situation where you could be an instructor and teach full-time. It's a full-time job while doing your master's, so it took a while. And then after my master's at the University of the Philippines, I went off to do a PhD in geology once more at the University of Michigan. And then I did two years postdoctoral work at Ohio State University at the Bird Polar Research Center, and then got the job at St. Louis University, where I'm a professor. That's great. And so what topic are we going to be focusing on on the podcast today? Right. I should add that my area of interest in research is really plate tectonics in the broadest sense. And my tools for studying plate tectonic processes are geochronology, where I date rocks using uranium lead dating with zircons primarily, and looking at the geochemistry of rocks to figure out their origin. So what we're going to talk about today is a bit out of my area of comfort, (laughs) but I'm eager to dive into it because uh, it's something I am developing an interest in. 
And what we're going to be talking about is something related to your interests, which are microbes. And we're going to be talking about how these tiny critters, pardon me for saying that, I hope that's not an insult, no. but I call every living thing a critter, how they had a really dramatic impact on Earth. And that impact was the rise of oxygen in Earth's atmosphere. I'm really excited to talk about this. I guess starting from the very beginning then, could you describe what the early Earth looked like? Right. So now the Earth's oxygen content in the atmosphere is about 21% in terms of the molecules. And in the early Earth, it was pretty much zero, not much oxygen. And today we walk on solid land on the continents. Way back then when the Earth formed about 4.55 billion years ago, it was pretty much a magma ball. So lots of molten material. Things were very hot because the Earth had just accreted from lots of tiny bits of planetary material that came together because of gravity. All that gravitational potential energy that was pulling all these bits and pieces together was converted largely to heat energy. So things were extremely hot. And there was lots of magma, and then that was followed pretty soon after by a huge impact. Most people think it was a Mars-sized object, Mars-sized planet, that collided with Earth. It's called the Mars-sized impactor. And that's when our moon formed. So lots of crazy things happening very early on. But then after a few million years, the Earth started to cool. And the atmosphere then was probably rich in hydrogen sulfide, this gas that smells like rotten eggs. A lot of CO2, again, not much oxygen. Methane, people believe, a lot of methane. So a very foreign atmosphere to what we're used to today. And then as the Earth cooled a lot more, liquid water finally was able to condense. And there is some evidence that that water was pretty much forming oceans, large bodies of water very early on. Cool. That's all so interesting to think about. And so that was just a, a mere four and a half billion years ago. And so you said the atmosphere lacked oxygen, but life was able to evolve without oxygen. So when did the first life evolve? Right. So at the very beginning, things were really too hot, regardless of the presence of oxygen or not. Things were just too hot for any life to exist. It would have been fried, literally fried or roasted. <laughs> but then, and as we said, things started to cool down. And let me talk first about some of the things that began to form. So rocks were there because from the moon, we know when you, whenever you look at the moon, you see this ball in the sky. And most people will notice two things about the moon. There are dark parts and light parts. The dark parts are pretty much lava flows, basaltic lava flows that fill craters. They're called the lunar seas or mare, so the seas of the moon. And then there are the light-colored parts. And fascinating, really fascinating. The light-colored parts are mountains. They're called the lunar highlands. And we know how old they are because the Apollo 11 astronauts went there. They landed and took back samples. And we've been able to date these lunar highlands. And... They are 4.5 billion years old. So these are chunks of rock that formed very early and have been preserved on the moon. And they, they have been preserved on the moon because the moon does not have plate tectonics among several geologic processes that happen on Earth. So the moon died early on. 
And so lots of the old rocks have been preserved there. Not so with Earth. So Earth remained a very dynamic planet, and the early rocks were destroyed. So we don't have any rocks that are 4.5 billion years old from the very early part of Earth's history. However, the oldest things we do have are minerals that formed in some of the early rocks. And the oldest mineral we have is a mineral called zircon. It's zirconium silicate. And that zircon is 4.4 billion years old, which is mind-boggling. So the Earth is 4.5-ish, and this mineral is 4.4. And it has survived because it was recycled. It got eroded from the rock it first formed in. It was carried maybe as sand, something like that, and was reincorporated in another rock. Wow. Yeah. So these zircons are really a godsend. They are things that we are able to extract a lot of information from. So I mentioned zircons because the oldest evidence of life is from a zircon, and it's in the form of graphite. Okay. So graphite is a mineral made of pure carbon, an essential element in life. And a lot of fossils, they end up being graphite because a lot of the other elements in life, like nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, they aren't preserved well. But carbon is preserved well. And so a bit of graphite preserved, I should say it was not preserved in zircon. It was preserved in an apatite which is another mineral that can survive. And the composition of that graphite, the carbon isotopic composition, is indicative of life. There are different varieties of carbon, and the varieties of carbon that are taken up by life are very distinct. And so we have that distinct fingerprint in the graphite preserved in an ancient apatite crystal. Incredible. Cool. So the age of that, I should say, is... About 3.85 billion years old, yeah. Wow. So th that's the oldest evidence of life in the form of graphite, 3.85. And some people kind of try to criticize that because it's not really a direct evidence uh, per se. And so the probably the, the evidence for life that is not controversial at all are these rock formations called stromatolites. Mm-hmm. A stromatolite is a type of fossil again, but it's very distinctive and it's very similar to stromatolites that are still forming today. There are stromatolites today we find in Western Australia in the present ocean and the structures they form are identical, nearly identical to the structures we find in these 3.5 billion year old stromatolites. And they were created by these bacteria, these cyanobacteria that produce these layers of calcium carbonate deposits. I like the idea of the indirect evidence, because I guess if we already had cells that were forming calcium deposits, then 300 million years before that, I'm sure there were other cells, right? Like, right, the, right. <laughs> yeah, like the evidence of the stromatolites or the, the fossil stromatolites couldn't have been the first appearance of life. So I, I like the, the geological version that you just explained. Right, right. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure uh, the quest for the oldest fossil or the oldest evidence of life is a quest that many scientists are <laughs> trying to get after and capture the holy grail, <laughs> the oldest evidence of life. So we're going to see more papers, I bet, coming out, you know, trying to show the oldest evidence of life. Well, that'll be exciting. 
So you're saying that life evolved, you know, maybe around 3.8 billion years ago. And that was still when we didn't have, we had hardly any oxygen in the atmosphere. So what happened between that time and then when oxygen popped up? Like what was going on on, on the planet and where did the oxygen come from and when? Yeah, so the early forms of life were not photosynthetic. That's what people think. Mm-hmm. And so they were not producing oxygen. But then eventually, some of the critters figured it out that, hey, there's this great energy source, which is sunlight, wonderful energy source, which we are tapping today with solar panels. Yeah. But these critters figured it out first, and they were able to use sunlight to use water and CO2 and make energy out of that. And a byproduct of that process that we call photosynthesis was oxygen. And not all photosynthesis produces oxygen. So there are other types of photosynthesis. But one critter finally figured out that you can use sunlight to make energy and the byproduct of that is oxygen. So when these critters first figured that out, oxygen started to be released by them into the atmosphere. And presumably their numbers, you know, started to increase, more and more of them developed, and more and more oxygen was being released. However, (laughs) however, that oxygen did not yet build up in the atmosphere. Okay. And the reason it did not build up in the atmosphere, even though it was being produced by presumably a gazillion of these critters, (laughs) is that the oxygen was captured right away Mm. by several sinks. So, you know, in, in the sciences, we use the term sink as any thing or process that might capture an element or molecules and sequester them. So uh, one of the main sinks for this oxygen that was being produced was iron, Mm. incredibly. So what was happening on Earth then was that we know that there were already continents. There's evidence for that. There was land that the rocks of that land were being weathered. The weathering was releasing iron from minerals, and that iron was going into the ocean. Iron was also being released by submarine volcanoes. And the critical point is that iron, as your listeners might know, can occur in two states of oxidation. So they can, it can be ferrous iron or ferric iron. So Fe plus 2 or Fe plus 3. And at that time, the iron that was being produced was the Fe plus 2, the ferrous iron, which is quite soluble in water. So all that iron was being flushed out into the ocean. It was just swimming around the ocean, quite happy as a free iron (laughs) ion, okay? And then the photosynthetic bacteria were creating oxygen, but the oxygen was captured by the iron. So the, the iron was being oxidized and was precipitating. It was forming minerals that sank to the ocean bottom, forming a sedimentary rock that we call banded iron formations. People love to call them BIFs, B-I-Fs. <laughs> so banded iron formations. So we, we see these sedimentary formations forming around 3.5 billion years ago, about the time when we think photosynthetic creatures appeared. The banded iron formations were forming for hundreds of millions of years, up to around 2 billion years ago, around then. So that is really good evidence that we had an Earth with iron that was just floating around in the oceans. But then as the O2, the oxygen was being produced, oxygen was being captured 
by the iron and being locked in as iron oxides on the seafloor as banded iron formations. That's very exciting to me. So there's these banded iron formations, and that's one of the clues that we have today to see that there was now oxygen being produced. And you're saying the oxygen was captured, but eventually it wasn't captured and it went into the atmosphere. So can you explain how that happened? And I guess, is that the great oxygenation event? When did the great oxygenation event start? Yeah. So the great oxygenation event, people estimate that to be around 2.4 billion years ago. Okay. So the iron was doing its work of capturing the oxygen, or I should say rather, the cyanobacteria was doing the work. Sure. <laughs> making the oxygen, right? They were working really hard making the oxygen, but the oxygen wasn't appearing in the atmosphere quite yet because the iron was just capturing it. But the amount of iron was limited. So eventually, most of that iron, the free iron that was dissolved in the ocean, was used up. And once that iron was used up for all practical purposes, then the oxygen that the cyanobacteria was continuously making eventually started to build up in the atmosphere. And the estimates are it built up pretty rapidly. And so that's what's been called the great oxygenation event, where the Earth's atmosphere started to see a buildup of free oxygen, oxygen that was found as the O2 molecule in the atmosphere rather than being locked in to rocks like the banded iron formations. Cool. It sounds like this took a lot of time, like hundreds of millions of years to go from the beginning of cyanobacteria to this big boom of oxygen. And so, yeah. And so when the oxygen started to be released in big quantities, what, what were the consequences for the planet? I guess before we move on, I neglected to mention a really cool line of evidence okay. to show that the oxygen was not present in abundance in the atmosphere. Okay. So prior to the banded iron formations and, and during the time of banded iron formations, there is a really good line of evidence in rocks, and that is the presence of pyrite. So I'm mentioning another <laughs> cool mineral. Is that fool's gold? It is fool's cool. gold. So almost every rock and mineral shop will have some pyrite there. And the pyrite crystals are found as cubes sometimes, sometimes as pyritohedrons. That's a crystal shape where the faces are like pentagons. So it comes in a variety of crystal shapes. And pyrite is found in many deposits. It's usually precipitated by hot waters. You find it often with gold. So there's gold and fool's gold <laughs> and in quartz veins. So it's quite a ubiquitous mineral that you can find everywhere in good quantities. So pyrite was being produced, has been produced throughout Earth's history. It's coming from solutions and magmas underground, and it eventually appears on the Earth's surface by erosion. And it is eroded out of the rocks. Today, pyrite does not survive long oh. once it's exposed at the Earth's surface. Hmm. In fact, it causes environmental problems. So if you have pyrite exposed at the Earth's surface, pyrite has the composition FES2, iron and 2 sulfur. That's the stoichiometry, the ratio. So it's iron sulfide. And it's very unhappy in the presence of oxygen. So once it's exposed... It is oxidized quite quickly, mm. and the sulfur is turned to sulfate, 
and it produces sulfuric acid. Mm. So many old mines where a lot of pyrite is exposed to the Earth's surface, it gets weathered and you produce this runoff from the mines, this very acidic water that's running off of the old mine tailings. Nasty environmental problem. So that's the fate of pyrite today. And you might have heard about pyrite disease. It's many samples of pyrite in museums, collections, undergoes a process of oxidation that people call pyrite disease. Because the pirate's unhappy. The uh, oxygen in the atmosphere is attacking it. So the point is, pyrite does not survive long in an atmosphere with oxygen. However, (laughs) prior to the great oxygenation event, pyrite did survive. So as it, as it uh, appeared at the Earth's surface, it was eroded out. It was quite happy to be rolled around in rivers, rolled around on beaches, and it was preserved in sedimentary rock that we find today. So the sedimentary rocks that are more than 2.4 billion years old, we find pyrite along with other sands and other minerals that formed at the Earth's surface. Just fascinating. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I also just want to add, I don't know if this is going to make me sound really stupid, but the algae I work with, they love really acidic environments. And I've written like three or four papers where I I write all the environments they live in in the intro. And I always say, oh, they they live in acid mine drainage because that's written everywhere and all the papers about them. I never knew what that meant until you just explained it. (laughs) (laughs) I always just, oh, they live in acid mine drainage. I just assumed there were like mines with acid. I didn't know why. So that that cleared it up for me that there's pyrite in mines creating sulfuric acid drainage. So that's very interesting to me specifically and probably no one else listening to the podcast. But <laughs> no, no, it's even 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 geologists, many geologists who don't deal with environmental issues or don't deal with ore deposits don't know <laughs> what acid mine drainage is, what causes it. So yeah, I you're always, perfectly in good company. Yeah, I always say, oh, I'm a bi- biologist. I'll just, you know, this is where they say they're found. That's where they're found. But makes sense now. <laughs> extremophiles <laughs> yeah yeah well and so speaking of extremophiles i guess back to this idea of the great oxygenation event and all these lines of evidence so you've explained all of these really interesting geological lines of evidence and then how did oxygen affect all the other life forms that were evolving at this time because i know there must have been a really big impact on them if the atmosphere is all of a sudden just changing drastically right The forms of life that evolved in an oxygen-free environment are unlikely to have been quite happy when oxygen finally appeared. So some paleontologists even think a mass extinction probably happened when oxygen began to rise. That's a major change in the environment. Oxygen was a toxin for these critters. And it's really fun to imagine, you know, the photosynthetic creatures evolved probably from these other forms of life that did not like oxygen. And here comes this newcomer creating this really bad toxin for its ancestors, <laughs> killing them off. Yeah. yeah. Boy, what, what a crazy uh, situation that must have been. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy how this one clade of life, the cyanobacteria, just they evolve, they appear somehow. Well, they don't appear, they evolve. And yeah. they cause this cascading series of events that I guess has ultimately led to animal life and us. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so other really important changes 
once oxygen began to rise. Again, this is really beyond my expertise, but stuff I've read about. Oxygen is a great fuel source or part of a great metabolism, right? So I think they say that you get 16 times more energy if you're an oxygen-breathing person, Mm. something of that sort. So oxygen really allowed the appearance or the evolution of multicellular creatures, of which we are a type. So one can really thank the photosynthetic creatures that made all this oxygen, that made evolution of us eventually possible. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy to think what if. So the the oxygen starts being released by the cyanobacteria and lots of organisms that don't like oxygen and are poisoned by it go extinct. Who knows if they didn't go extinct, what the, the descendants of those lineages would have been. And then instead we end up with eukaryotic life and multicellular life, all because of or in part because of the, the great oxygenation. It's so, so exciting. Right. And I can add yet another <laughs> yeah, yeah, effect of the oxygen. So we have the ozone layer mm-hmm. um, in the upper atmosphere. And ozone is O3 instead of O2. And as most people will know, the ozone layer protects us from ultraviolet radiation, which is quite harmful. And the life forms prior to the rise of oxygen were restricted to the ocean and probably somewhat deeper parts of the ocean uh, where light could still penetrate, but not the ultraviolet light. Okay. So once the oxygen started to build up in the atmosphere, then ozone started to appear, the ozone layer, and we had this shield now protecting us from UV radiation. And as a result of that, life probably could now inhabit even shallower water where the UV light previously prevented life from colonizing, and eventually land. So without the cyanobacteria's creation of the oxygen layer and the ozone layer, we would never have evolved land creatures. Huh. I never thought about that before. I I love that. That's very cool. I can tell you a little story. Okay. A really fascinating story. Yeah. (laughs) Going back to... The banded iron formations. Yeah. So we mentioned that earlier. The banded iron formations are these rocks composed essentially of iron oxide. And as we mentioned, they formed because the rise in oxygen, as oxygen was produced, it started to combine with the dissolved iron. And as we mentioned, once most of the dissolved iron became minerals in rock, then they stopped forming pretty much. So there's this period of banded iron formation, and then they pretty much stopped until <laughs> until they reappeared. Oh. And that was a big puzzle, yeah. And a prominent time when they reappeared was about 700 million years ago, which is fairly recent as far as Earth's history is concerned. And they're called this younger, younger banded iron formations, as opposed to the older ones that formed when Earth's oxygen rose during the GOE. So they're a mystery. But then some scientists kind of figured it out. And it was quite, quite an amazing hypothesis to begin with. And it's now been called the snowball Earth hypothesis. And that hypothesis says that at one point, the Earth was pretty much frozen over literally frozen over. There was ice at the equator. And since I mentioned that, one of the really intriguing lines of evidence for Snowball Earth 
was that some people were finding these deposits, glacial deposits, at equatorial latitudes. Hmm. So there's various lines of evidence to show that they were at the equator, including paleomagnetism, which we probably need a separate episode yeah. <laughs> on. <laughs> but there's lots of really solid, robust evidence that you know there were glaciers at the equator. So people proposed this hypothesis that the Earth was frozen over. In other words, the oceans had ice on them. And so the reason why we form banded iron formations again is that because the oceans had a cap of ice, they were isolated from the atmosphere. So the atmosphere had the oxygen, but beneath the ice in the ocean water, the ocean water was not getting that mm. oxygen. The oxygen only gets into the ocean water from the atmosphere. So it gets, you know, dissolved in the ocean. But the ice was like a cap separating it. And so underwater, the volcanoes were still erupting. The undersea volcanoes were starting to feed the iron into the ocean once more. And that was Fe plus two once more. Mm. It was circulating in the ocean, dissolved quite happily. And then eventually, snowball earth ended. And the ice melted and then now the atmosphere interacted again with the oceans and the oxygen got into the ocean water and precipitated banded iron formations again and huh. that kind of solved the mystery of these young banded iron formations pretty fascinating hypothesis that's now pretty widely accepted yeah so that solved that mystery and then that must have also added some more certainty to where the first banded iron formations came from, which is that the iron was being oxidized by life, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. This is a more general question, but all of this makes me think about how biologists and geologists in general don't communicate as much as they should. Like, I I know I had to take one geology class in college, but it was rocks for jocks or whatever they call it. It was like geology 101. And I, you know, I learned like what a sedimentary rock was, but I didn't learn any of this stuff, which is so fascinating. And in the, you know, 30 minutes I've been talking to you, I've already gotten clarity on a whole biology thing I've already written papers about that I didn't know about. So, I mean, what are your thoughts as a professor on interdisciplinary science and biologists and geologists getting along? I absolutely love it when different fields get together and have communication skills that allow them to share ideas without the potential wall of jargon, you know? Mm, mm -hmm. So, you know, I might go to a biology talk, but if the speaker doesn't calibrate their talk to a non-biologist, then maybe nothing happens, right? Yeah. But that's why I love these seminars where people invite speakers and the speaker is told or the speaker is aware that the audience is going to be a broad audience. Then they calibrate their talks and are able to communicate the concepts to specialists outside their own specialty. And I think that's when magic happens. Yeah. And it, it doesn't have to be in a formal conference. Many departments have, you know, tea time or coffee breaks where different disciplines come together and you have your elevator talks. I'll ask you, well, what are you doing? And then in two sentences, you tell me what you're doing. Then I start poking a bit more and finding out what you're doing. And magic happens, right? <laughs> and I think I mentioned to you before we started recording that... I am sometimes invited 
to sit on PhD committees by other departments. Mm -hmm. And we're all busy. <laughs> and sometimes I just want to say no, because <laughs> I just don't have time. And I look at the thesis topic, and it's very technical. And so I'm kind of on the edge of, with it. But then sometimes the PhD student who's inviting me says why they invited me. So there was this one chemistry PhD whose thesis title was really very technical and had no idea why he was inviting me. And he basically said, it, it touches upon the origin of life. And I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. And he said he was searching across different departments and found me. He said, oh, you're a deep time, deep time geologist. A deep time geologist means I don't study really current processes. I study rocks and try to figure out past processes. So millions of years ago, that's deep time. So he invited me on the committee because he was studying the origin of life, which is really deep time stuff. I guess deep time biology. <laughs> So I said yes, and it was fascinating because listening to him present his research during our dissertation committee meetings, it got my brain working. And a lot of what he was talking about was chemical dealing with potassium and sodium in cells, the sodium-potassium problem. And then I knew about sodium and potassium in igneous rocks. Huh. And so I got to thinking, huh, there was this great time when... Earth's igneous rocks, granitic rocks, changed composition from sort of sodium-rich granitic rocks to potassium-rich granitic rocks. And so that's gotten me to dive into a lot of literature and start thinking about the origin of life and how the types of igneous rocks forming on continents where life presumably started and how there might be that kind of interaction between the geochemistry of rocks and the origin of Earth's first cells. I love that. And I had a similar experience. I, ha I took a class in the beginning of grad school. Half of the class was biology grad students. Half of the class was geology or earth science grad students. And, you know, a lot of the content was kind of somewhere in the middle. But for the, the big assignment in the class, we all had to write a term paper. And he gave a list of topics, like geology topics and a list of biology topics. And he said that the biologist had to do it on a geology topic. And the geologist had to do a, a big term paper and a big presentation on, on a biology topic. And it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But it was really cool. Like for the first time ever, I had to look at some of the geology literature. I ended up writing mm -hmm. about an extinction, which is like kind of biological. But mm -hmm. I had to write about it in geology terms. And I thought it was a pretty effective assignment. Like it was nice to learn about another discipline. Right. I, I find I get some of my best ideas at conferences, not attending the talks that are in my mm. specific category. I'll read titles and I'll jump back and forth between the rooms, you know, running, yeah. <laughs> catching the next stop and sitting, sitting in the back of the room and just uh, taking it all in from fields that are kind of peripheral. It, it, it's really exciting. Yeah, that's nice. Before I move on to my last question, is there anything else about the GOE that we didn't touch on that you wanted to discuss? I guess, yeah, the, the one interesting connection so in fact, so I'm 60 years old. Oh. So th there, were, there was a television series in the 1970s that I really loved called Connections by David Burke, a British guy. And it was a series, but the series started with agriculture. And he traces 
how technology, you know, have, has connections. Someone invents one thing and it leads to another invention, so on and so forth. So he starts with the invention of the plow, I believe, and ends with nuclear weapons. Oh. Incredible. Yeah. So um, it's fun to think about connections. So there's a really wonderful connection between photosynthetic bacteria and us again, human history. So human history can be divided, I guess, into three broad eras. We were once in the Stone Age. Then we entered the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. Once we figured out how to make bronze after copper. So copper mixed with a little tin made bronze. We figured that out. Then we had uh, bronze tools and weapons. And now we're in the, essentially still in the Iron Age. <laughs> Sadly, still in the Iron Age. Because most of our tools, most of our buildings still use steel girders and our tools are made of steel. So steel, the main ingredient of steel is iron. And most of our iron is mined from banded iron huh. formations. And who do we thank for all that iron? It's photosynthetic bacteria. So I think we should have Cyanobacteria Day where we thank cyanobacteria for making all the oxygen yeah that's really great to think about how that comes full circle i really like that and i always say whenever i do an instagram post on photosynthesis or cyanobacteria i always say you know half of the oxygen produced on the planet today is not from plants land plants and trees it's from microbes in the ocean and a good portion of that is still cyanobacteria. So one in two of our breaths is because of microbes. Incredible, incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, okay, so I have one more question about geology that I just came up with while we were talking. I uh -huh. don't know if this is hard or a weird question, but you've been describing all of these geological features of the distant past and how we can learn about what life was like then from the banded iron formations and the zirconium and everything. So if you were a geologist two billion years in the future, what do you think you would deduce about life now? Like, what do you think you'd be seeing and what do you think you'd be thinking? Yeah, I think the most intriguing or interesting aspect of the paleontology for a person two billion years in the future would be the mass extinction mm. produced by humans. Okay. So they would find fossils of human beings and they would figure out, gosh, these mammals were nuts, you know, like why did they do this? <laughs> and we would have certain index fossils or indicators of human influence, and plastic would be one of them. Oh, I was going to ask about that. I was going to say, is there just going to be a layer of plastic in the Earth? Yeah, so uh, at SLU, I have a colleague, and her lab deals a lot with plastic. They're finding it everywhere, in caves. It's just, you and I have plastic in our bodies I know, now. It's in, terrible. From what we're eating, just incredible. Yeah, and maybe maybe plastic will degrade after two billion years, but there will be you know uh, indicators, chemical indicators of that plastic. The concrete mm. we made would end up as rocks. <laughs> Just incredible. So yeah, I think human the, the impact of humans on Earth would be the most incredible thing that a geologist two billion years from now <laughs> would notice about Earth. I think that's kind of sad because you know in two billion years. That's what a geologist would see. And in 2 billion years, 
that's what a biologist would learn about. And if I lived 2 billion years in the future, I would just want to learn about microbes. But I guess I'd have to learn about human stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, the crazy thing about microbes. Okay, so the cyanobacteria appeared, you know, billions of years ago. But they're still around, you know. Yeah. If your strategy for keeping alive and reproducing works, it'll be selected, right? That's yeah. the lesson of natural selection. Why innovate when it works? <laughs> so maybe the lights that started it all for us are still going to be around. Like, yeah, oh, there are lots of branches that came off, but they weren't as successful as our our main branch. Yeah, no, it's true. And cyanobacteria, microbes will still be around in 2 billion years. If we destroy the ozone and there's more sun, all of those photosynthetic organisms are going to do really well, actually. And like maybe we, I, I mean, I don't think there will be humans in 2 billion years. So, you know, yeah. I guess if, if an alien geologist was looking back, that's what they would see. I don't think a human geologist will be looking back on the Earth 2 billion years right. from now. Right. <laughs> well, uh. John, this great. has been so great. I'm, yeah, I'm fun. so I'm so glad you came on. If listeners want to follow your work, where can they find you? So yeah, I have the Instagram account, yes. which I got a post. It's been kind of <laughs> a dormant for a while. <laughs> but yeah, I have a website on slu.edu. Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. I had so much fun. Me too. It was wonderful. I love talking science. Yeah, me too. <laughs> this interview was so much fun. I just love how geological observations like those John discussed about zircons, pyrite, and banded iron formations give us clues about the past that have formed the basis for our understanding of some of the most important biological and chemical changes on the planet, like the GOE. He also introduced us to cyanobacteria, which produce oxygen as a byproduct of photosynthesis, and this is what gave us our modern oxygen-rich atmosphere. Next week, we'll be covering the biology of cyanobacteria in more depth. And now for today's a cool microscopic or small thing I saw this week, where I highlight the work of others on social media. Luigi Bozzano, or at pondlife.04 on Instagram, shared a beautiful photo of a dinoflagellate on February 11th. It looks like the cell is swooping down from somewhere else, and the shape is really interesting. This photo is so clear because he uses a technique called focus stacking, where you take photos at many depths, and then a computer program stitches them together to create a more detailed, almost three-dimensional effect. Everyone go take a look. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes of the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day.